Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Dog Pod, where we discuss all things related to canine health, research, how Good Dog helps breeders run their breeding programs, and so much more. I'm Dr. Nate Ritter, the staff veterinarian here at Good Dog, and your host for this week's episode. I'm very excited to introduce the topic of today's podcast, selecting breeding stock and what factors should be considered when making this decision. I'm joined this week by Dr. Jenna Dockweiler. Dr. Dockweiler graduated from Kansas State University's College of Veterinary Medicine with honors in 2014 and completed her small animal rotating internship at Wheat Ridge Animal Hospital in 2015. She then completed her comparative theogenology residency at Cornell in 2017 and became a diplomat of the American College of Theriogenologists that year. She practiced small animal theriogenology and general practice for four years prior to becoming a veterinary geneticist with Embark Veterinary. In her spare time, Dr. Dockweiler enjoys photography, hiking, and competing in performance events and confirmation with her Welsh Springer Spaniels. Dr. Dockweiler, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. So I guess we can dive right in. What important factors there to consider when choosing a dog to add to one's breeding program? So in my mind, an ideal breeding candidate is generally healthy, passes all their breed required health testing, has a nice temperament, meets its breed standard, contributes positively to its breed, meets the goals of its breeder, and helps maintain the genetic diversity of that breed. So those are a lot of factors to consider. And with many breeds, especially those with a smaller gene pool, some of those factors may not be perfectly met. So it's important to remember that there is no one perfect dog. Absolutely. I have to look at this kind of big picture. And so we'll dive into each of those topics. And let's start with health, speaking to it generally in some conditions that all breeders should be aware of and consider when they're testing their breeding dogs. Sure, sure. So breeders should be well-versed in canine care in general, of course, and should be aware of health issues that are common in their breed, especially those for which we cannot yet test. So idiopathic epilepsy, which is a seizure disorder typically occurring in young dogs, comes to mind as kind of an example of such a condition. So we want to be looking at pedigree information to determine our likelihood of potentially passing that on to the next generation. And then for me as a theriogenologist, all breeders, regardless of breed, should really be familiar with canine brucellosis. So that's a bacterial disease. It is mostly passed through breeding, although any bodily fluid can actually be infectious. So that bacteria can cause both male and female infertility and abortion, as well as a whole host of other symptoms. So that could include back pain, eye inflammation, skin irritation. Really, it can look like almost anything. And this disease is important for a couple of reasons. For one, it is really, really difficult, if not impossible, to ever cure an infected individual. So that means that the recommended course of action for any infected dogs is almost certainly going to be euthanasia. And the second reason it's important is because it can infect humans as well. And in some cases that can cause really significant illness. So because this is a pretty severe disease, prevention is really going to be our key. So reproductive veterinarians typically recommend testing all of their breeding dogs every six months or so for brucellosis. And of course, testing any new arrivals that come into your kennel. 
So that's typically accomplished with a blood test. We did used to have a patient side test. It could be run in a matter of minutes. Super convenient. But recently that test has had some spotty availability. So your veterinarian may need to send a blood sample off to a reference lab. So that's just going to increase our turnaround time. Totally not a big deal, but just important to note for planning purposes. And so you mentioned, you know, some conditions that we can't test for looking at pedigree always important for conditions that we can test for kind of a couple different ways we can go about that. I was wondering if you could speak to some of those practices. Yeah, absolutely. So the best places to learn about what tests are recommended for your breed are, of course, going to be the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals or OFA website. They're going to maintain a list of recommended tests by breed and your breed's parent club website. Your veterinarian is also going to be a good resource. They're often aware of many breed-specific health concerns. But it is worth pointing out that the OFA and those parent club recommendations tend to be only for the most common conditions and there are other health tests available for less common or potentially less recognized conditions that may affect some lines in particular. So you really don't know what you don't know. So doing more or advanced testing can be beneficial, especially for new dogs in a kennel when our knowledge of their familial health issues might be a little bit more limited. Yeah, absolutely. And it's performed in a couple of different ways. So most often the major categories being physical and genetic testing. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain the difference between the two. We have a lot of breeders that reach out and there seems to be some confusion there. Yeah, absolutely. So these are, as you said, two different ways of testing and they really do complement each other. So we rarely can get away with either one or the other. We typically do have to do both. So genetic testing is going to determine the actual genetic makeup of an animal and identifies genetic mutations that are associated with diseases. So that physical, or we'll also call that phenotypic testing, is going to identify disease processes in the animal, but doesn't identify the genetic makeup of that animal. So to just back up a little bit, the gene is going to be the basic unit of inheritance and dogs have two copies of any given gene at every genetic location. So they inherit one from mom and one from dad. And each of those copies could be wild type, which is the naturally occurring form of that gene in nature, or a variant or mutated form, which are going to sometimes lead to disease. So in order to understand our genetic testing, we need to understand mode of inheritance, which just refers to how a genetic variant or mutation is going to be passed down to the next generation. So you can kind of think of this as the number of copies of a mutated gene a dog needs in order to develop disease. So we've got four main ones that we kind of think of for our more simple or monogenic, meaning one gene genetic conditions. So that would be dominant. We're only going to need one copy of a mutation to develop disease. Recessive, we're going to need two copies to develop disease. X-linked recessive, where males who only possess one X chromosome only need one copy to develop disease, while females typically require two because they've got two X chromosomes. And then co-dominant, which is a little bit more complicated, but essentially no copies of a variant means no risk of developing disease, One copy means an intermediate severity or risk of disease, and two copies means kind of a maximal severity or risk of disease. So when you're running those genetic tests, those results usually are going to tell you whether or not your dog is at risk of developing a known genetic disease or if they're a carrier for a recessive genetic disease. So again, those concepts mostly apply to kind of our simple one gene genetic conditions, 
But there are a ton of diseases that are controlled by multiple genetic mutations or are the result of interactions of a dog's genetics with its environment. So those are going to be referred to as polygenic, which means many genes or complex or multifactorial diseases. And of course, those aren't easily genetically tested at this time. So that's where our phenotypic or physical health testing comes in. So usually this is used for conditions where we don't know the underlying genetics or if a disease is inherited in a more complex manner. So this is going to give you information about that animal, but won't necessarily tell you its propensity to pass a disease to their offspring. So in other words, it can't identify asymptomatic carriers of conditions quite in the same way that a genetic test can. So I think the example here that most folks are going to be familiar with is, of course, testing for canine hip dysplasia. So that's done with x-rays and we can use x-rays for, you know, a host of other conditions as well, including elbow dysplasia, shoulder osteochondritis, desiccans and tracheal hypoplasia or narrowed windpipe. And then there are some phenotypic health tests that are based on physical exam as well. And there is actually a newish evaluation scheme for brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome or BOAS that I just want to touch on really briefly. This condition is caused by several anatomic abnormalities that are associated with that flat face or brachycephalic appearance of breeds such as the French and English Bulldog. It's super, super cute, but this condition can lead to loud breathing, heat, exercise intolerance, and even death in really, really severe cases. So testing for this BOAS relies on a veterinarian who is trained in this procedure, listening with a stethoscope that's going to be done before and after a three-minute period of brisk exercise. And then there's a grading scheme. So it ranges from zero, clinically unaffected, to three, severely clinically affected. And then there are a bunch of other physical exam-based tests as well. So we can test for patellar luxation, dentition, and then other phenotypic tests are available, which would include autoimmune thyroiditis, which is a blood test, a cardiac evaluation. Typically, that's going to be an ultrasound of the heart and brainstem auditory evoked response. So there's a lot of different testing options. And really, the OFA website is our best repository for all the information regarding those. Yeah, absolutely. And important to remember with some of those physical testings, it may not just be a one and done. Some tests you can test at a certain point and kind of appreciate to the most extent possible, but some of them may need to be repeated over the animal's lifetime. And definitely, like you mentioned, important to incorporate that with your genetic test results. And just because an animal doesn't test perfectly, it doesn't mean they aren't necessarily need to be included in the program. And so I was wondering if you could speak to that. It's hard to come across a perfect animal and we may not only want to limit the breeding pool to air quote perfect animals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So generally when we're incorporating our phenotypic health results, those are not going to be black and white to apply to a breeding program. Even the genetic test results are not always black and white, which we can touch on here in a minute. Generally speaking, we do recommend only breeding animals with passing scores on those phenotypic testing. And for hip scores in particular, a normal OFA rating might not catch every case of hip dysplasia. But we do have the benefit of having a public database, sort of. Owners do have to initial the form to release those abnormal results. I do always strongly encourage that. So that's going to provide us with good information on HIP scores for all of our tested relatives, including really distantly related relatives. So you can make decisions kind of based on the entire pedigree. And then we need to keep genetic diversity on our radar as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I really like your point of making sure those results are registered. We really try to encourage that. You know, you already have your results. You know what you're going to do with that animal, but population health overall, it's very helpful to understand different breed traits and characteristics. And so definitely encourage everyone who gets that testing done to make it publicly available. That's how we learn and make changes moving forward. We're going to take a brief pause from this episode's interview to bring you the latest edition of our Good Dog Pod mailbag, where we answer our community's questions about canine health, behavior, how a good dog works, and more. To answer this week's questions, I'm joined again by Good Dog staff veterinarian Dr. Ritter. So we will kick things off with our first question from Terry of Hudson Valley Labradors and Havanese of Claverack. And Terry wants to know a little more information about coccidia in puppies, specifically about prevention once treatment is complete? Yeah, it's a great question. We have a fantastic article on our health hub. I would encourage everybody to seek that out if you're interested in learning more. The majority of this information is available in that article, but environmental sanitization is critical to controlling coccidia outbreaks. Infective oocytes can survive in a contaminated environment for months, and oocysts can be resistant to disinfectants. Feces should be removed from any regularly used areas as quickly as possible. Quick removal of feces decreases the risk of contamination. Living spaces should also be kept clean and routinely sanitized. Chlorine disinfectants can be effective. Please check to see whether it's too corrosive for the surfaces you'll be using it on. Some ammonia-based disinfectants kill oocysts but cannot be used while animals are present. Steam cleaning can actually be effective as well. After a thorough cleaning, a waiting period is recommended before animals return to the space. Routine disinfectants have actually been proven not to be effective against coccidia. All pups should receive a fecal exam as part of their veterinary visit, their annual wellness visit, and be treated if it's needed or indicated. Adult dogs should also have an annual fecal test performed as part of a wellness exam. Finally, it's important to mention that stress can actually increase a dog's susceptibility to a coccidia infection, especially when the stress is prolonged or severe. Stressful events can include separation from the mother, moving to a new home, a change in the dog's routine, or travel. Sometimes stressors can lead a dog who would otherwise not be affected by a mild coccidia infection to become symptomatic. And as always, you can always discuss with your veterinarian. They're a great resource on the topic. Awesome. And for our next question, this is from Caitlin. And Caitlin is wondering, how do you keep parvovirus off of one's property and out of one's breeding stock? And how about visitors coming to your house to see the puppies? Yeah. So once again, we have a great article on this subject in the Health Hub. The College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell has a great article online as well. I recommend giving them both a read. But prevention of parvo requires proper vaccination, as the passive immunity acquired from the mother's colostrum is only present for a limited period of time. If maternal antibodies are above a certain level at the time of vaccination, they can actually neutralize the vaccine. Therefore, it's important to vaccinate in a series and attempt to administer the vaccine as close to the time that mother's antibodies are no longer effective. The initial series of parvovirus vaccinations, usually included in the combination vaccine, should begin around six to eight weeks of age, with subsequent administrations every two to four weeks after until the puppy is around 16 weeks of age. During this time, it's critical to keep puppies away from possibly contaminated areas and animals of unknown health or vaccine status. Following that initial puppy series, boosters should be given on a regular basis. How else can we prevent besides vaccination? So parvovirus, unfortunately, can be extremely hardy. That's capable of surviving for months outside an animal, even through the winter, and is resistant to most household cleaning products. Infected dogs can shed vast number of viruses, making it difficult to disinfect an area once it's been exposed to an infected dog. 
these facts highlight the importance of isolating any dog that is infected from other dogs. Given the fact that most environments are not clean with disinfecting products regularly, a puppy can be exposed without any warning, making vaccine protection all the more important. If your home and yard have been contaminated by an infected dog, there are steps you can take to disinfect them before introducing a new dog or puppy. Despite its relative resistance to cleaning agents, we do know that it can be inactivated by bleach. Cleaning with a solution of one part bleached mixed with approximately 30 parts water is an acceptable method for disinfecting any indoor area. There is evidence suggesting it loses some of its ability to infect an animal after one month in an indoor environment. Outside, obviously you can't bleach your lawn, but rain or water can dilute the concentration of the virus over time. This dilution combined with the sanitizing effects of sunlight can bring the number of viruses down to an acceptable level in a few weeks. Regarding your point in the question about visitors, there are biosecurity measures that can be implemented to reduce the risk when new visitors come. Examples include foot baths or wearing booties or gowns or gloves. I would definitely recommend discussing that with your veterinarian as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for hopping on here to answer those community questions. I know questions especially relating to parvovirus are really prevalent from our community. So thank you for answering those. And thank you to everyone who submitted as well. If you'd like to submit a question for the chance to hear it answered during a future episode of the Good Dog Pod, be sure to join our private Good Breeder Facebook group where we share submission forms every week. And thank you and we'll see you next time. So you touched on genetic diversity. It's definitely an important aspect to keep in mind when choosing a breeding dog. Can you talk about what tools breeders have at their disposal kind of relating to this topic and how they can go about keeping that in mind? Sure, sure. So just to give a little bit of background, the coefficient of inbreeding or COI, that's going to be defined as the likelihood of inheriting two identical genes from each parent. So that's usually expressed as a percentage, and it just represents the level of inbreeding individual. So the COI of an individual is going to increase with increased relatedness of its parents. And I do like to remind folks that we do need some degree of inbreeding in order to maintain the desirable and consistent characteristics and traits of a breed. So it's not all bad, but we do definitely need to keep it in mind. So why do we care about COI if we do need some inbreeding to maintain our breed characteristics? And we care because of something called inbreeding depression. So that is the term for reduced fitness in the offspring of related individuals. So in the dog, we've seen reduced fertility, shortened lifespan, reduced puppy survival, and increased disease prevalence as inbreeding measure increases. So all of those things have been associated with an increased measure of inbreeding. So we have a couple ways to measure our COI. So that can be estimated using pedigree analysis or by genomic measurements or actually looking at the genetic makeup of that animal. So our pedigree-based COIs are, of course, going to depend really, really heavily on record-keeping accuracy. Typically, those go back three, five, maybe even 10 generations. And these pedigree-based COIs can really deviate substantially from our genomic-based calculations because they only assume that 50% of DNA in any given offspring comes from each parent. That's not going to be entirely true in biology due to a phenomenon called recombination. And also founding members of a breed way back when that breed started were often related to one another, which a pedigree-based COI is just not going to consider. So now for the frustrating part. <laughs> Average COI is going to vary really, really greatly depending on breed. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to maximize the genetic diversity within any population. 
So people always ask me, well, what number should I shoot for? And there really is no one number I can tell you that if you hit this number, we're going to minimize the effects of inbreeding depression because it's going to vary so much by breed. But there are some general strategies that we can employ to maintain that genetic diversity within a population. So first, I like to point out that it is important to know what CY you're actually dealing with in your breed. And for that purpose, for the reasons I mentioned before, I'd recommend using a genomic measure. But whether you're using a genomic or a pedigree-based COI, you should be able to use that information to estimate the COI of offspring of a particular pairing. So you can do kind of test matings on paper. Because that COI is going to depend on how related the parents are to one another, not how inbred each of those parents are. So even if you do have two parents with high COIs, they may produce puppies with low COIs if they themselves are not closely related. So really important to put pen to paper and actually determine what we're dealing with in each of our litters. Other strategies, it's really, really important to maintain carriers of recessive diseases within the population. Those individuals aren't going to show signs of the associated genetic disease, and they can be bred smartly to avoid producing at-risk puppies. So in general, we're not going to want to breed two carriers together. That will result in about 25% of those puppies being at risk for that genetic disease. But if we breed a carrier to a dog with two normal copies of that gene, then we're going to have 50% carriers and 50% clear, and no puppies are going to go on to develop that disease. So perfectly appropriate to do that and can help us maintain genetic diversity. And then another common pitfall to avoid would be popular sire syndrome. That's where one sire is really overly used within a population, and that, of course, is going to decrease diversity. And especially in rare breeds, I want to have everybody consider that we want to utilize all of the healthy, stable temperament individuals that we can really to help maintain diversity. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly complicated. <laughs> and I complicated. think important to remember the breeders need an entire team to kind of <laughs> do these things appropriately. And so it may take more than just you and your general practitioner to keep an eye out for veterinary geneticists and genetic counselors and urogenologists, all important members if you're trying to run your program to the best of its ability. And I wanted to touch on the carrier aspect. I think, you know, that was very interesting. Like we said, we can't look for all perfect animals. Right. Um, there are some conditions with incomplete penetrance where a carrier may show signs. Would that affect a breeder's decision when thinking of using such an animal? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can just go through kind of how we include genetic health testing results in a breeding program sort of in general. So things that you need to know in order to effectively apply those results to your program would be what your breed is, what variant or mutation that we're talking about, and of course that variant's mode of inheritance. All of that has to be taken into account. Because certain genetic variants are expected to increase risk of disease in certain breeds or populations, but then not in others. So there are some progressive retinal atrophies that kind of fall into this camp. So if you've got a breed that's not expected to be affected by that variant, then there's no reason really to take it into account when you're doing your breeding pairings. Other variants are seen at a really, really high rate in certain breeds, so eliminating them completely from a population could potentially result in a really precipitous loss of genetic diversity, which is going to come with a host of other problems. And in some instances, disease-associated variants are going to be fixed within a population, meaning all members have two copies of a variant, so you're not going to eliminate that variant without an outcrossing program to other breeds. So you'll have to take some other things into account if you're in that situation. 
So I like to remind people that we want to take the variant's effect on overall health and the availability of a prevention or treatment strategy into consideration as well. Then, as I mentioned, for our recessive diseases, ideally we're not breeding two carriers together because doing so, about 25% of the litter would be at risk. But they definitely should be maintained within the population and bred to normal individuals to preserve that genetic diversity. And actually, even individuals affected by a recessive condition can potentially be bred to an individual with two normal copies, provided, of course, they're an otherwise good breeding candidate and breeding isn't expected to exacerbate their condition. So with that pairing, all puppies would be carriers of that condition, but none of them would show signs of disease themselves. And then for our dominant and co-dominant variants in populations where elimination of individuals from that gene pool isn't expected to rapidly decrease genetic diversity, individuals with one or two copies ideally shouldn't be bred. So instead, we like to use a first order relative that doesn't possess the disease associated variant if they are available. But if breeding these individuals is necessary to maintain that genetic diversity, they should be replaced by normal offspring when that's possible. And then kind of the last of our four modes of inheritance for our X-linked variants. Normal males can definitely be bred. They're not going to pass on that variant associated with those diseases because they've only got one X chromosome and we know that that gene is normal. But ideally, known carrier females shouldn't be bred as all their male offspring would be at risk. And most of the diseases that fall into this camp are pretty severe. So that would be things like hemophilias are probably the biggest examples of X-linked variants. Great. Thank you. I think moving on to temperament, something that is a little bit different, maybe not even as clear cut, even as complicated as what we (laughs) just discussed was something that could even be considered even more complicated, should definitely be taken into account as well when choosing your breeding stock. What thought process should be had here when breeders are selecting dogs to include as it comes to that aspect? So I am a very firm believer that temperament is just as important as health when selecting a dog to breed. So of course, I would recommend taking into account the breed standard and the desired temperament of that breed. But I also recommend really strongly considering who's going to be buying your puppies. Because unless you're breeding for really specific jobs, like police work kind of comes to mind almost all your puppies are going to become pets. And really, even the show dogs are pets. I think it was Pat Trotter, the legendary judge, who said, not all pets are show dogs, but all show dogs are certainly pets. So obviously, the temperament of a terrier is going to be really different than a retriever. But shooting for a temperament that is easy for people to live with is what's going to be really ideal, at least in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think important, you touched on as well, intention for these programs and what you're moving towards in terms of what you're trying to breed? Will these animals have a certain job? What should people think about maybe in addition to temperament when choosing those types of animals? Yeah, breeders should also be carefully considering how well their breeding candidates fit into their intended purposes prior to breeding. So if we're breeding for show, we're going to want to really study that breed standard to produce puppies that best match it. If we're breeding for a specific job or sport, performance in that area as well as structure should be considered. And in all cases, regardless of purpose, health and temperament are, at least in my opinion, the two facets that really, really can't be sacrificed here. And like I said before, there's really no perfect dog and you're likely not going to get everything that you're shooting for in every litter. So I think we kind of as a breeder community tend to be kind of hard on ourselves. So I want to remind everybody to give yourself a little bit of grace because sometimes we do absolutely everything right. 
bad things still happen with our litters or we miss the mark on kind of what we were shooting for with that litter. So really our responsibility is to make the best decisions we can with the information that we have available to us. Absolutely. A really good point. And I think trying to increase that information that is available by going through these different steps and considering these different things, so, so very important. But at the end of the day, these are living things and nothing's guaranteed, but we can certainly try our best to have the best result. So that's all we've got for today. I want to thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. We'd also like to thank Dr. Dockweiler and Embark for your time and willingness to educate our community. We hope this information was helpful. And yeah, we'll see you back here for next episode. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.